now on four, proving that the truth really is out there in the real X-Files. most memorable experience I had took place when I was about 12 or 13 years old. There was a, a certain area where I lived where there were arrowheads and artifacts to be found from the early Indians that inhabited the place. One time I was up there by myself and I could smell a campfire and sounds of people behind me. And as I turned around behind me to see where all this was coming from, there, to my surprise, this field was no longer a plowed field. It was an open, grassy prairie, but there were Indian lodges there. There was smoke coming out of these lodges. There were cooking fires in front or up to the side of these lodges. And that's where this, this, these smells were coming from. And then things just kind of dissolved, and there was the field again. It definitely convinced me that we could access different times, different places. Once something like this opens up to you, you say, I can travel in time. It's like a time machine. Or I can go anywhere I want. But how do we do this? How did this happen? I didn't know at the time. It was just a spontaneous thing. Mel Riley belonged to one of the strangest chapters in the history of espionage. Strange because it involves something that supposedly doesn't exist, the psychic ability known as extrasensory perception. The culture of Western science has tended to treat such things as fantasy and folklore, but the culture of espionage, always on the lookout for new ways of gathering intelligence, has tended to be more open-minded. When I was first introduced to this idea of parapsychology, I was very skeptical. Then I began to think about it, and we all know of people who seem to have some kind of psychic powers. Just last night, by coincidence, I was watching a movie, and in it, one of the characters, on two occasions, had a physical vibration and a psychic impulse that something was happening to one of her children who was distant from her. People watching that movie wouldn't say that was crazy or absurd or out of the question. We all think there are people who have those kinds of impulses. The CIA and other agencies have had much more than a casual interest. For the past two decades, they have been employing people with apparent psychic abilities, people who are known as remote viewers. Showing the top. Are you going down a hole or what? 500 feet above the site, something should be visible.
As a science writer, I found it hard to believe this story when I first stumbled across it two years ago. But the higher up I went, the stranger the story got. Police departments consult psychics all the time, but on an informal basis. I found that the U.S. government's psychic spying program was official, using military and civilian personnel to penetrate the most difficult intelligence targets. A. Up. Vertical up. Peak. Down. Hard. Stage two, the colors. Red, green, brown, orange. Textures. How it all works, nobody knows. But remote viewers believe they can sit down at a table, calm their minds, and move their perceptions anywhere in space and time. Guided by a colleague, the viewer describes images and other impressions that drift into his consciousness. Large, tall, South America, Chile, Peru. AWOL break. The use of remote viewers goes back more than two decades to the dark days of the Cold War, a time when intelligence reports suggested that the Soviets were trying to turn psychic phenomena into the ultimate weapons. It appears to have been a watershed in the Soviet research, and I say Soviet because it wasn't just Russian, it was Georgian and other nationalities. And prior contacts between unofficial Soviet citizens and the West dried up, and the whole program appeared to go uh, classified, it was hidden from view, and was presumed to be funded either by the KGB, the military, or some other, quote, governmental uh, interest. There was evidence that they were particularly active in uh, long-distance telepathic communication, also in PK that they call telekinesis, and possibly in telepathic hypnosis in order to disrupt individuals in key positions or handling sensitive equipment. Multiple laboratories were involved, that they were screening uh, civilians for uh, natural talent, uh, if you will, uh, employing uh, psychics and healers and things of that nature in a wide variety of experiments. Uh, one of the things reported was that they were actually talking about attempting to induce death, uh, physical illness, things of that nature. To catch up with the Russians, the U.S. intelligence community turned to Stanford Research Institute in California. SRI, as it was known, was America's second largest think tank, with more than $70 million in government funding annually. It often dealt with high-tech, defense-related projects, and so it seemed like a good place for secret work on something as unusual as this. A respected SRI physicist, Hal Putoff, got the program started. Uh, I was working at at SRI uh, on lasers and uh, I had an avocational interest in in this field and so I had carried out some initial experiments on, on kind of a lark. I was actually interested in the possible physics behind it and so I circulated the results from those early experiences around experiments around and uh, pretty soon we were approached by representatives of various uh, government agencies who, who were interested. We agreed to do it uh, thinking again it was just going to be a small-scale effort not realizing it would take up the next, uh, whatever, 15 years of my life. 
In the fall of 1972, the CIA gave Hal Puttoff $50,000 to find a psychic technique that could be demonstrated reliably and, if possible, used operationally. Puttoff soon focused his efforts on extrasensory perception as the area most likely to produce results. If psychic perception could be made accurate and reliable, then whoever possessed it could be the perfect spy. Uh, Ingo Swan was uh, a well-known, quote, psychic. And so he was one of the first people that uh, came to our program. And so we started out doing what anyone else would do. We hid things in boxes. We hid pictures in envelopes. And after a few days, uh, he got bored with that. And he said, uh, why are you having me do this? You want to know what's in the box? Open it up. Want to know what's in the envelope? Tear it open. I mean, this is a trivialization of, of this ability. Uh, what I can do is I can close my eyes and see anywhere in the planet. Why don't, we, why don't we look at that? Frankly, to mollify him, we, we said, okay, well, well, we'll do some experiments. How do you want us to do this? And he said, well, just pick coordinates, latitude and longitude off a map, and I'll tell you what's there. And so we got good descriptions of mountains and lakes and so on, and uh, so we thought, well, maybe we have a case of eidetic memory here. He's memorized the globe. So we got coordinates of more specific things like actual buildings and, and so on, lakes in the middle of large land masses, uh, little bits of land masses in the middle of large oceans and so on. And that continued to work, apparently, to a point that we decided may maybe there's something to this and so we should take it up. When given the map coordinates, Swan would remain in an apparently normal state of mind, concentrating on the visual and other impressions that bubbled up from his subconscious. If the viewer would be physically at the site of this coordinate, the viewer would begin to experience the sensory surroundings. And these just poured out like water out of a bucket. You can make long lists of them. And in many times, you can understand what the site must be simply because of these stage two responses. Then we discovered that when that was enough done, that the, 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 the natural system in us begins to describe sizes and shapes and heavinesses and qualities and things like that. And so we call this dimensional contact with the site. And this is where you see they suddenly depart from writing down words, saying it's cold or hot or so forth and so on. They begin drawing pictures of it. The information um, comes through in quick images, feelings, um, almost as though it was subliminal, almost as though one part of your mind is trying to communicate with the other part of your mind. It's as though you're actually feeling, smelling, touching, tasting the perceptual parts of the experience. So the question eventually emerged, so you can see the building from the outside, how do you get inside of it? You can rerun the whole process through a different whole schema of dimensional contacts and sketches and things, and you can begin to say, what's inside? You can go, you can have the monitor say, move 50 feet underground, and there you are. In the spring of 1973 came a turning point. Hal Puthoff told the CIA about the new technique, and they quickly put him to the test. An agency official gave put off the coordinates of a target about three hours' drive from Washington, D.C., a target that didn't appear on any map. It was a colleague's vacation cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains. As it happened, the coordinates were slightly off, 
and Swan ended up focusing on something else nearby, something much more interesting. Hal gave me the coordinate and I said, well, you know, there's really nothing here but a bunch of trees. So he said, well, look around and see what else there is. So I did my dazzling work on that and looked around and finally drew a map, uh, a simple map of some buildings enclosed in a fence and so forth and so on. And it, it was a, sort of a strange map because there was a very outstanding curved roadway that went around and there was a, a flagpole with an American flag on top of it. And I did say I thought it was a classified military installation. Putoff gave the same coordinates to another psychic, a friend named Pat Price. And Price also described what seemed to be a classified military installation. He came up with even more detailed information than Swan had. We generate a lot of description and uh, walking through uh, buildings, reading name tags, uh, looking in file cabinets, describing the general layout and so on. By the remote viewer's own description, they felt that they had stumbled on some kind of military site. And, um, you know, that maybe they were actually reading the names of officers and projects and so on. Because the site Swan and Price had viewed was indeed classified, SRI have never revealed exactly what it was. But I managed to get hold of the original coordinates and found, deep in the mountains nearby, evidence of some kind of secret government base. Eventually, I found a vantage point on a distant hilltop, and through the haze of a summer afternoon, the base was visible. It matched many of the remote viewers' descriptions, and it turned out to be a satellite eavesdropping station run by America's super-secret National Security Agency. Hardly surprising, then, that Hal Putoff is still guarded about the results. And apparently, it was uh, quite a good result because um, <clears throat> we were asked to uh, do a lot more, and at Beginning at that point, we began having people show up from various government agencies to participate in remote viewing themselves. The client agencies included the CIA, the Navy, and the Defense Intelligence Agency, known as the DIA. The program received a blow when Pat Price died in 1975, but Ingo Swan remained, and other remote viewers joined the ranks over the years. In 1978, a multi-million dollar remote viewing research and development program was begun. Headed by the DIA, the program was codenamed Grill Flame. The U.S. Army played its own strong role in the remote viewing program. I had one of our briefings by SRI and was impressed with their results, and particularly with the results of Ingo Swan, who was the only one of their psychics with whom I had face-to-face -face, uh, contact. And it was a very business-like way of going about it. It was not a seance type of atmosphere. It was just hard-headed practice of remote viewing. Swan claimed that almost anyone could demonstrate some remote viewing ability. General Thompson, the head of Army Intelligence, decided to find out whether this was true. And one day in his Pentagon office, his staff gave him a remote viewing target of his own. The target was the Alexandria Railroad Station, but one of the phenomena of uh, remote viewing is that you zero in on the most interesting target in the vicinity, and I zeroed in on the Masonic Temple. Well, I realized that when they drove me to the site, and I looked up from the station and saw the temple, 
I knew that that's what I'd zeroed in on. It was further confirmed a few weeks later when I flew out of National Airport and saw the uh, Masonic Temple from the same angle that I had viewed it remotely, and it completely fell into place. From what I knew of remote viewing, it convinced me that I had been able to see something imperfectly. So the decision I made was to set up a small in-house, low-cost effort in remote viewing. And uh, that's what we did. Thompson's remote viewing unit was based at Fort Meade in Maryland, under the Army's Intelligence and Security Command. First housed in these Army intelligence offices, the unit was soon moved to its own more isolated quarters, where remote viewing sessions could be held with relatively little distraction from other activities at the base. Those admitted to the unit were military intelligence personnel, whose backgrounds suggested that they might have natural psychic talents. One category of person who was good at remote viewing were imagery interpreters. A good imagery interpreter sometimes can see more in a picture than the unpracticed eye, and they had a knack for visualization that appeared to uh, work very well for remote viewers. Other categories of people who were said to excel at remote viewing were people like artists, uh, entrepreneurs, risk takers. Uh, by the nature of the intelligence business, we had some risk takers too. Sergeant Mel Riley was one of the first selected for the new unit. He had been an imagery interpreter, an expert in the analysis of overhead reconnaissance photographs. But perhaps Riley's best qualification for the job was that he had a history of psychic experiences, like many others who joined the unit. The people involved in the unit uh, came from a lot of different disciplines within the intelligence field. Uh, some were uh, intelligence uh, agents, case officers, things of that nature. And quite often, many of them had very interesting backgrounds. Uh, several had near-death experiences. One was, of course, in Vietnam, uh, having been shot up. At least one or several of the people uh, have recounted an early experience sometime in their life with what they believe to be a UFO. So it wasn't your average bunch of soldiers? Well, yes and no. By 1983, the Army had begun to expand its recruitment for the unit after Ingo Swan developed a special remote viewing technique. The new technique, he claimed, could make anyone as good as the best natural psychic. One of the first selected for this alluring new training program was an officer named Ed Dames. Ingo Swan, as my mentor, was one of the most difficult, the toughest teachers I've ever had. What he was asking us to do was almost unbelievable. Uh, he was a disciplinarian. He, there, was, there were absolutely no errors allowed in the performance uh, of our, our training duties. He, cr he, he cracked the whip constantly. It was a very, very stressful environment. Uh, more stressful than I had been in a lot of very uh, strenuous Army training uh, programs. In fact, I had become Ingo Swan's protege, the caretaker of the technology, if you will. And so I provided advanced training to the individuals in the, in the team, my peer group. You're, you're the Luke Skywalker to his Obi-Wan Kenobi. I suppose you could say that. <laughs> At SRI in California and Fort Meade in Maryland, America now had two operational psychic spying units. They enjoyed support at the highest levels of the intelligence community. For as one enthusiastic congressman put it, 
They were a low-cost radar system, and if the Russians had them, America should have them too. Can you touch the top of the target with your hands? Can you, with the Intelligence gathering is like putting together the pieces of a puzzle. Some pieces come from satellite imagery, some from electronic intercepts, some from the open media, some from human agents on the ground. To its supporters in the U.S. intelligence community, remote viewing was simply an inexpensive way of providing yet another piece of the puzzle. around the edges there, around the sides and the front and the back. The unit had been established in an attempt to gather intelligence against very intractable, high-level intelligence programs. For instance, uh, problems that the Army had with uh, predicting what Soviet tanks would uh, appear in the next battlefield, things of that ilk, including strategic programs, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical warfare weapons programs. Uh, it was a tactic of desperation. It was an attempt to go around doctrinal intelligence gathering because those techniques, those methods, were not answering the mail, if you would. Some viewers uh, exhibited talents in certain areas, more so than others. Uh, one particular viewer was very good at people, locating them, describing them, uh, actually describing their mental state and uh, where they were coming from, what they were doing. The, the times that we really employed this, uh, again, to, to, to good stead were against individuals like Muammar Gaddafi uh, to determine during the Libyan war where he would move to next so that we could ascertain his position and drop bombs on him. Another remote viewer I recall was very, very good at detecting anything nuclear. Anything that was involving uh, nuclear material to him had a green glow around it. And in fact, I found that to be true because I could also uh, detect a green, so, like kryptonite, I guess, uh, a kryptonite green-like glow on fissionable nuclear material. Unfortunately, the official documents which could corroborate these claims are classified. And the remote viewers say that for security reasons, they themselves were often not told how accurate they had been. But I was able to get some idea of the accuracy of remote viewing under conditions like those of actual operations at Fort Meade. A across. In the old days of Ingo Swan's training program, remote viewers used map coordinates to start their sessions. But it was eventually found that random numbers worked just as well, or even no numbers at all. The idea seemed to be that at some deep level, the remote viewer knew what the assigned target was, without ever having been told. Things like map coordinates or random numbers were merely rituals. Here I have asked Mel Riley to remote view a target selected arbitrarily just before the session. All I have told him is that it is a location at some particular date. As far as he knows, it could be anywhere, at any time. Dome-like. Give me some textures. Rough, hard, sandy, dry, arid. Temperatures. Dry, dusty, hot. Sounds? Is this rushing sound? 
Can, can, can you quickly give me a st some stage fours? Some AIs and EIs. EIs. Panic. Fear. Confusion. Dread. Spewing forth, just roiling and rolling clouds of ash. Um, hot, choking. The target was a nuclear test at Bikini Atoll in July of 1946. Clouds of ash, hot, choking. Panic, fear, confusion, dread. Riley's session wasn't perfect. As often happens in remote viewing, he described some of the basic elements of the target accurately, but failed when it came to a broader description of what he was perceiving. AOL break like a volcano. Still, one has to remember that remote viewing is just one piece of the intelligence puzzle. If an analyst in Washington is expecting to find something at a target site, he may see it clearly in the remote viewer's data, even if the remote viewer himself doesn't see it. In this session, for example, the target is a particular missile silo at Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming. Riley thinks he is describing a skyscraper, but an analyst might notice instead the shape of an MX missile. Most of our clients, our clientele in the Secret Service, the FBI, the CIA, DIA, Navy and Air Force, uh, sometimes Drug Enforcement Agency, our return clients that would not have repeatedly come back to us. That's not to say that they acknowledged us to other people, but they would not have come back unless they were getting something that was useful. And in many cases, they did tell us that it was useful. In all this talk about techniques and targets and clients in the intelligence community, it's easy to forget something. Remote viewers were not merely passive intelligence gathering devices, like electronic radars or spy satellites. Remote viewers were human beings. The closer they got to their targets, the more they were there, immersed, senses and emotions bathed in a new and perhaps unsettling reality. In one instance, uh, we did a coordinate, and uh, the place turned out to be what I call a prison camp. Uh, the buildings in it were like American uh, barrack types of things, two stories. This wasn't in America, by the way. And it was surrounded, it was in a forest. There was forest cover everywhere. It was very hard to photograph from the spy in the sky, satellites and everything like that. It had uh, three enormous wire fences with barbed wire patrolled by dogs. And, uh, but it had a railhead. It had a railway that came up to the front major building. And there was a road leading to it. And the road seemed to be equally protected on both sides for a considerable distance and so forth and so on. So we were sitting there and I says, well, this is a prison camp. Why, why should they be interested in a prison camp, you know? <laughs> and so, of course, my monitor, who I won't mention, said, well, look around and everything. Uh, there must be something there. So then I noticed 
that there was uh, two big elevator doors in one of these buildings. So I says, ah, well, they're not going up, so they must be going down. So I went down, and there was a whole different world. And it was an awful world, just dreadful. This was a biological research installation where they were subjecting monkeys and dogs and horses and pigs to infectious, bi extreme biological infectious diseases, and human beings too. And so the prison camp on top was probably a preserve of political undesirables who disappeared from and uh, were used as human subjects. And this is the only... Uh, it still makes me cry. When, when I recall that, uh, I was a wreck after this. This was just the most dreadful thing I'd ever seen. And um, I think I cried, weeped for at least an hour before I could get it back together and things like that. So my conclusion, I shouldn't probably talk about that site. Um, I can't identify the country. Um, I do know that the place was identified as that and that it was totally destroyed a couple years hence. The realization of the Eurekas, the oh my gods, that one experience, one realizes that this was a doable thing, that remote viewing really worked and could produce accurate information, accurate enough to be used in, in cases of deadly force or life or death situations was profound and it was life changing. One would never be the same after they came out of that training. We would never be able to relate to the world around us, to time and space the same again. And uh, so the implications, uh, the implications were quite profound. And we were also not able to relate to our fellow military officers the same way that we did before. So we'd walk down the halls of the Pentagon and hear Twilight Zone uh, theme songs when we walked by, do-do-do-do-do-do-do, uh, that kind of thing. program in 81, I thought it was doing very well. Uh, it hadn't achieved its ultimate purpose yet, but it was making progress, and I think it was making progress because we stuck pretty, struck religiously to uh, nuts and bolts uh, remote viewing. Uh, if it got into trouble after that, I th think it was because it may have branched into other phenomena that were less uh, utilitarian for the Army. After General Thompson moved to another posting, the main supporter of remote viewing in the Army was Major General Albert Stubblebine, head of the Army's Intelligence and Security Command. Stubblebine was highly enthusiastic about remote viewing, but his enthusiasm expanded to include other paranormal possibilities. He was given the nickname Spoonbender after a series of sessions with his senior officers in which they all tried to use psychokinesis, mind over matter, to bend cutlery. John Alexander was one of the staff officers closest to Stubblebine. Well, uh, we had seen on a number of occasions what we'd call macro psychokinesis, uh, where major uh, events occurred uh, in front of us. And uh, what I brought along are, are two forks. Uh, and what we would do is have individuals 
uh, hold these as I am now, uh, one in each hand, where there's no physical force available. Now, these two forks used to sit uh, snugly next to each other. And what was happening is that we had a group of uh, colonels and generals, mostly. An individual, uh, totally untrained, was holding this, uh, turned his head, and when he did, this particular fork dropped a full 90 degrees. Um, and then with everybody watching, the same fork came back up, went down, and came back to the position that it's in now. Uh, again, about 30 highly qualified witnesses, uh, and as you can see uh, from this, uh, they're distinctly different and no physical force. And that happened, as I say, witnessed by many qualified observers. Well, one of the things that people used to ask me about, say, what are you going to do, bend tank barrels? And I said, well, no, that's ridiculous. Uh, but what you can do, I think, is to impact electronics and things of that nature, where rather than moving large amounts of physical matter, you're talking about electrons. Stubblebine also believed that such demonstrations would shake up the worldviews of his fellow officers. In other words, being confronted by the paranormal would keep them intellectually on their toes. Instead, it seemed to knock Stubblebine off his feet. There was a sense that General Stubblebine had lost his balance. And was uh, the, that and lost his balance and perspective, and that there might be a psychological a flaw, a flaw that might uh, result in a poor decision or a catastrophic decision on his part, uh, strategically and tactically. General Stubblebine was responsible for upwards of 30,000 men and women in positions worldwide, so this was not consistent with his responsibilities. Stubblebine resigned in 1984, and the remote viewing unit was expelled from the Army. Although it remained at Fort Meade, it came under the control of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Its new boss was DIA Chief Scientist Jack Verona. A secretive figure, Verona was also influential and respected at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill. But under his leadership, the remote viewing unit included less structured paranormal pursuits, such as spirit mediumship, also known as channeling. At least one individual was sent to the unit. Now, this was a civilian-type individual, not military, uh, who had, supposedly had talent in channeling uh, discarnate entities. Later on, another civilian-type female was hired. Uh, if she was given an assignment, she would go sequester herself in the other building and read tarot cards or, or something and come up with information having to work with tarot card readers and channelers, uh, the witches as we called them, most of the, the individuals were female. This was, uh, uh, this was too, mu too much to bear for professional military officers. The witches were holding personal uh, sessions, that is readings if you would, a la the Madam X readings that you would find on the streets of any city for uh, of public officials, congressmen, uh, uh, Jack Verona himself who was the head of our program. Somebody coined. The reason uh, somebody coined it a psychic blowjob is these people would walk out of there, uh, and these these entities would tell them what they wanted to hear, what would make them feel good. Of course. 
What had happened to Verona and to Stubblebine before him might have seemed shocking. But to remote viewers, exposure to the paranormal was inevitably the start of a personal transformation, a transformation that might lead anywhere. Some people compare some of their experiences in remote viewing, especially some of the really deep bilocation type experiences where you actually go to a different place. Uh, some people would compare that to a drug-induced uh, altered state. However, there's, uh, there's a big difference. The, the big difference is, is that you are always in control when you're remote viewing. Uh, not only that, there are no lasting uh, side effects from remote viewing other than the fact that it may change your whole life and your outlook on the universe, the world, and things around you. One of Mel Riley's colleagues in the unit was Lynn Buchanan. One of the minor drawbacks of this, actually it could be major, is that uh, if your spouse, uh, let's say, is not ready to have a new husband, then uh, there may be some marital problems exist in all this. My wife is, uh, is extremely tolerant of all of this and has stood by me and has probably been the biggest help I've had in all of this. And every now and then, if I sort of go out on a limb personality-wise, she nails me back to the floor and, and tells me, you know, you're turning into a kook. <laughs> I've always needed to keep his feet on the ground. <laughs> That's been part of my responsibility in the marriage. And there have been times when the task that he was working on at the time would be particularly trying for him and he would tend to get a little obsessed. There have been times when I would step in and say, this is really getting ridiculous here. As a result of Lance being in the uh, remote viewing field, we have become acquainted with a number of people that we surely would not have met otherwise. About a year and a half ago, we attended a convention together and uh, there were a number of speakers and uh, different ideas that were being presented in the psychic realm. And at the convention, they had a um, spoon bending or a psychokinesis party. And I ended up bending this particular spoon. I even managed to bend the bowl of the spoon, which is supposed to be one of the more difficult things to do because you have to go against the grain of the spoon that's naturally there. Despite the apparently outrageous possibilities of psychokinesis in remote viewing, the Buchanans seem to maintain a sense of humility and they gently changed together. Other couples weren't so lucky. Ed Dames and his wife are undergoing a divorce. He became more and more obsessed with it, and then he will, um, he works very hard, long hours, and um, just um, he warned me that uh, I better change with him or he will leave me behind. He often tells me he's trying to make a dent in history and change mankind. It is a big idea. So if I say, well, can't you just do ordinary things? And then he gets real upset with me. He was mostly interested in the extra, extraterrestrial, the ETs. 
that's his obsession. I was, it was becoming bored at using the technologies against the normal tactical and strategic military targets. We began to, uh, I began to conduct advanced training operations. For instance, determining a location of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, Noah's Ark purported UFO activity. These were the kinds of things that really were very, very interesting, the spice of life, if you will. What would you do with this information? We couldn't take it to the National Security Council or our superiors because uh, it was bad enough. We were on thin ice enough as it was uh, for reasons that I had already mentioned. So we began to continue operations against these kinds of enigma that is, continue to investigate them under the rubric of advanced training, but keep the information to ourselves. Following a series of military-related scandals, the Pentagon in the late 1980s began to subject units like the remote viewers to greater scrutiny. The Secretary of Defense, Carlucci, was looking for in the, uh, on, the, on the tail of the Oliver North uh, scams, uh, Iran scam, was looking for other hip pocket organizations that might uh, become political embarrassments. An Inspector General team was sent on behalf of the Secretary of Defense to review our operations. All the operations that represented many years of work were shredded by the civilian uh, administrators. They burned up two shredders, uh, literally burned the motors up in the shredders, trying to sh shred all the operations uh, data. The remote viewers say they were not given access to the IG report, but it doesn't seem to have been favorable. And in any case, the Cold War was over. The unit went into decline, its staff and budget dwindling. The SRI program by now had stopped altogether. Remote viewers were still used by the intelligence community, for example, to help find Scud missiles during the Gulf War, but many of them were now working as private consultants. Earlier this year, the few remaining DIA viewers were moved from their old buildings at Fort Meade. Their whereabouts and the future of the program are unknown. Many people have asked me what's my overall view of remote viewing. And um, it's been one mother of a surprise from the beginning until the end, even until this day. But the whole thing is a surprise because it's like it's occurred 50 or 100 years before the time it might have occurred in. You know, it seems to be a precursor to something else that, that might, might emerge in a civilization that's prepared to deal philosophically with the fact that human beings have undiscovered and undeveloped faculties. Right now, I don't see a future for it because of this mixed-up condition. As far as the future of parapsychology and intelligence is concerned, I don't think there's a real important place for it. At the same time, no intelligence officer would ever turn his or her back totally on what could be a valuable source of information. So. Were I in the CIA today, I would still be wanting them to monitor what's going on. Well, I think even if we have not been successful so far, and if uh, the Army has given it up as they have, that it still is a worthwhile pursuit for the same reasons that uh, I thought it was originally. There's something there. We can't explain it. It works. Uh, if we can 
cause it to work more accurately and reliably. There are a lot of things it can do for us. Hi, how are you? Just fine. Okay. I couldn't get this close to the story of remote viewing without trying it myself. And I did train for several weeks with Ingo Swan, learning the techniques he had used and had trained okay. others in a decade before. Hard, rising, correct. over, down, B, don't know, stitch twos, um, blue, white, correct. brown, correct. warm, correct. smell correct. of minerals, correct. sulfur. Sometimes, as in this training type session with Swan, I used map coordinates and got constant feedback throughout the session. On other occasions, I had no map coordinates and no monitor to give me feedback, and thus was totally blinded to the target. On the whole, my data were full of inaccuracies, but I described the targets well enough and often enough to convince myself anyway that remote viewing was not just some delusion. Rising. Steam. Vapor. Water. I'm going to ask you to review your data. Uh, this, there's white, uh, there's motion, there's falling, there's crusted stuff, hard crusted stuff, there's uh, smell of minerals, sulfur, water, mm -hmm. trickling and hissing noises. Uh, this has all the signs of some kind of hot springs. Okay, well, my, I just what was going to do an AOL, which is a uh, geyser. Okay, we'll end. Perfect session. There were even times when I did so well, I began to think I could make it to the big leagues myself, if given the chance. Maybe I could be one of the select few, a shaman spy. It was a seductive idea, and perhaps a dangerous one. Would I be able to handle the personal transformation that full-time remote viewing seemed to bring about? Maybe not. In the end, I decided I'd leave the serious remote viewing to the real pros, the ones already transformed. The ones who have learned to cope every day with the impossible. After having spent uh, many, many years remote viewing, uh, at least 20, officially remote viewing. Um, I tend to remote view constantly. It's not something I have to sit down and actively pursue. I don't have to get into an altered state anymore. Uh, it's become a part of my being, a part of my life. It's as if you have a, a scanner, a radio scanner or something. I always have a channel open. Uh, that is ready to receive these inputs uh, that come from other realms, uh, other states, uh, psychic state, I guess maybe you'd call it. Even when I'm, I'm driving in the truck or something like that, uh, and I'm not in an altered state. This is my normal being right now. Uh, you know, signals could come in as we're speaking here. I just log them in and deal with them later. What sort of signals? 
Who knows? When it's late in the evening, I climb up the hill and survey all my kingdom while everything's still. Only me and the sky and an old whippoorwill singing songs in the twilight on Mockingbird Hill. Tra la la, twiddly dee dee, it gives me a thrill. To wake up in the morning to the mockingbird's trill. Tra la la, twiddly dee dee, there's peace and goodwill. You're welcome as the flowers on mockingbird hill. So this was a great chance.